This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the third week of December 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. All through the fall and now through the winter, we've been getting together every couple of weeks to bring you commentary about current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, great to see you. Welcome. The burden is yours, the pleasure is mine. (laughs) (laughs) On today's episode, we're going to look at three topics. This is our last episode of the season, so we're glad that you've been listening. Thank you. And to start out, Dan and I will be taking a look back and talking about the show, why we started it, how it's been going, and where we think it's headed in the next season. Next, we're going to talk about the recent Supreme Court case surrounding religious liberty, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And in our last segment of the show, we'll take a few minutes and nerd out about Star Wars. We also have special bonus segments, of course, for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit more bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, I also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. Dan, how have you been? More or less well. Thank you for asking, David. It's that most wonderful time of the year, by which we mean the most anxious and stressful and busy. Those of us in in the academic world, it's grading time and test-taking time and papers time and and all those fun flavors. But then we also have the uh, impending end of Advent and beginning of Christmas and New Year's on the horizon. So there's some good mixed with the bad, mixed with the ugly. How do you balance all that? Oh, gosh, not not always well. Mm. Not always well. I, I, you know, this season, this semester seems to be going all right. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in a relatively healthy religious community, which is not always the case. You know, men and women in religious life, like men and women in families, uh, local families, you know, some are better than others. Some are more functional than others at given times. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate. The community here in Chicago is great. So uh, I think the time we have together in prayer, uh, meals, fraternity, that's always very supportive. You know, yeah, by and large, I, I'm grateful for the students that I have at, at CTU and my colleagues, folks like yourself. And uh, yeah, so I, I really can't complain. There are people who, who really have uh, very difficult, very stressful circumstances to face, and, and I'm certainly not one of them. But but we all have in our own ways these stressors of this time of year. So trying to create a space, as St. Bonaventure would say, to allow myself to become imbued with the Word, to birth like Mary, the the Word made flesh, we can birth in the world Christ among us. And so trying. Amen. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? What's up? Yeah, so I am getting ready for our annual Christmas trip to Pittsburgh to see my wife's family. And so everything is winding down. The kids are finishing up school and getting ready to uh, depart from that. I mean, at least for the semester, they're in uh, elementary school over here at the local Catholic parish school. I love Chicago. I love Chicago with all of my heart. But it's really nice to get away from Chicago and get a perspective distant from it and then be able to come back and be like, oh, yes, I love the city and, and, and all that. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm still writing and I'm still working on many projects There'll be some more audio projects that I'm working on in the new year in addition to this and Things Not Seen, so I'm excited about that. We'll keep the listeners posted as those things come online and become available. Yes, I, we can't say anything. This is very exciting, but Sandberg Media is working on some things. They also remain uh, not seen, but <laughs> but I have heard something, and uh, that is very exciting. So yeah. listeners, stay tuned. Yeah. 
But, uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm excited about is the fact that we have had a successful eight-episode season. This is the, for listeners who are just joining us, thank you. We're ending things for a moment. This is the last episode of our first season. So we, we agreed to do eight episodes sort of over a span of every two weeks. And so we've been doing it for the last 16 or 17 weeks. We will come back in the spring, but we wanted to take a few minutes and kind of look back at why we started this in the first place and how we think it's gone, what what we would change and what listeners have told us they'd like us to do more of, and then to talk a little bit about what we're planning for the next season. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. So my hope for this has been fully realized. What I wanted to do with this conversation was, first of all, just get a chance to get to know you better, Dan, and that has been a great blessing to me. And I also wanted a chance to, how can I put this? When I am hosting Things Not Seen, it's my job to listen more than I talk and to be a very good asker of questions, but to not really inject my personality or interject my opinions into, into the discourse. And, and I'm comfortable with that. But I also realized when I stood back and sort of looked at it that I missed actually having a real conversation with somebody where I got a chance to be me. And so this has given me an opportunity to do that. And I very much appreciate that you were willing to go along with this. Yeah, no, it's 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 really been my pleasure. Yeah, just to recap for the listeners who may not know, the, the, the kind of origin story, you know, this is big with all the superhero films, right? How did this happen? Well, David was bit by a radioactive spider, and then I stepped on an uh, electrical cord, and uh, no, none of that really happened. But in terms of the magic of the Francis Effects uh, origin, um, this really, David gets gets all the credit for this because it was his idea um, you know, his his training not only as, as a professional theologian, something that we share in common, but also his love of uh, the medium of radio and his skill as a radio producer and, and in recent years has worked a lot in that field and has continued to work in it. So last, you know, months ago, earlier this year, I guess it was, he approached me and said, hey, why don't, would you be open to doing this? And little did he know that about seven years ago, I, I actually had been a podcaster my podcast was called Dating God. It came from the title of my first book, and, and I had a blog that had the same title. And it was a lot of fun. I also love podcasts. I also love radio. I love to be a consumer of it. And so I love producing it. And, and my program was, was very similar or, or closer to Things Not Seen than it is to uh, the format that we have here. I mean, I would invite guests to come on and talk and would be more interview than it was kind of straightforward conversation. But in the spirit of Mark Maron's WTF or Terry Gross's Fresh Air, it, it was really an opportunity for me to talk to interesting people and share those conversations. And, and it was really great. It was well-received. But my schedule was such and my energy was such that I, I couldn't do the interviewing, the recording, the editing, the production, all the stuff that's required behind the scenes. And I think for the average podcast or radio consumer, it may be easy to imagine that people are just sitting around with microphones hooked up to a computer and they talk and that's the end and they put it on the interwebs. But it's so much more complicated than that, so much more time consuming than that. When David approached me, you know, with this idea of let's have a conversational kind of program where we would, you know, get to know one another on the one hand, but talk about current events, uh, theological topics, politics, culture. He's like, are you interested? My response was, yeah, but I don't want to do any of that production stuff. <laughs> and he's like, that's okay, because that's what I do. Yep. And so it's been a wonderful partnership, both on air between us um, and, uh, you know, behind the scenes. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would be remiss if I did not emphasize, and I'm sure he is not happy about this. So you have to leave it in, as they say, you can't cut this out in editing, but that, that you hear this every Wednesday uh, or thereabouts is, is thanks to David. And so um, I just, I sit here and I, I don't quite look pretty, but I just sit here and I, and I talk. Uh, David does all the hard work. You're very kind. I, I, I am thankful for those kind words, but I'm also just thankful for all the time he's selling himself short. He's put in a lot of time behind the scenes to help this thing get off the ground as well. So mad shout outs to Dan Haran as well. <laughs> so it's props accepted. Props accepted. Um, <laughs> so when we got started, we had sort of talked about what we wanted this show to sound like. And we both were listening to some podcasts at the time. I think it might interest the listeners if we were to sort of talk about that a little bit. So yeah. when, when you were thinking about what this would sound like, were there other shows that you had been listening to that you wanted it either to sound like or you wanted to veer away from? Is that a fair question? It's a great question. I actually took your lead on this. You you had given some recommendations, and, and there were programs that I had listened to 
not necessarily committedly, but kind of in passing. And, you know, again, if we're going to name some of these, some people might identify kind of political affiliations. And and you don't have to uh, like or dislike or whatever the particular – uh, if, if it's a political podcast. So, you, you know, you had mentioned, well, something akin to, and it wouldn't have the same contours of or, right. or thematic focus, but something like uh, Pod Save America, which is, uh, for those who aren't familiar, um, is, is a podcast that is hosted by several speechwriters and communications officials from President Obama's administration. Once they, they came out of office, they needed something to do. And, and there was a real gap that uh, there's a lot of talk radio on the political right, and there really isn't kind of a, a comparable program on, on the political left, as it were. And so they, they f- uh, saw a need and, and provided it. And, and the takeaway for me was that their conversation is a bit wonky. Uh, it's very at times in the weeds. And for some people, that's not their cup of tea. They, they're not interested in getting into the behind the scenes kind of programmatic and detail-oriented discussions. But something about that that tenor really appealed to me in the proposal for this podcast that we would, I mean, we're professional theologians, we have that background, we're relatively with it people in terms of uh, what's going on in the news, we're interested in these things, these subjects, the historical background. And so wouldn't it be interesting to invite people into our conversation about uh, some of these topics? So that's one thing. Uh, you had also mentioned the the Slate Gab Fest, which yeah. I was less familiar with. It's it's certainly less partisan. You know, they bring in varying points. It's almost like an audio, audio uh, editorial page where you get a couple different figures and they're debating and talking about, you know, the news of the day or the news of the week, but it's not an interview style. So, you know, one of the podcasts I listen to pretty regularly is uh, Fresh Air, which is really an NPR radio program, and that's almost straightforwardly interview so when you ask what did I hope it wouldn't be, my understanding is that we were both on the same page. It would be less that or even less uh, Mark Marin, the comedian's podcast, WTF, uh, in which he interviews uh, and have conversations with actors and comedians and politicians and others. And in there, it's it's also less formal. It's, it's more conversational, but it's still really interviewee. And so I, I see kind of us you know, our intention being something closer to the political gab fest or Pod Save America, less than fresh air or something like that. And is that your take too? That is. And I remember those conversations and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of both those that you mentioned actually in fresh air too, but the, the gab fest and Pod Save America. One of the things that was very present in my mind was what I didn't want it to sound like or some aspects that I didn't want to have in the program. And one, there's a there's a Gimlet program called Reply All, and the, the two hosts that are the main voices in that, and it's been a while since I've listened to it, but they would have this, this tendency, their on-air persona is to kind of snipe at one another and undercut one another and kind oh, of man. take cheap shots. And I remember a conversation that we had early on where I was clear that that was not at all the kind of tone that I wanted. I want uh, our listeners to understand the respect that I have for you and for your your learning and your accomplishments. And I I want to be in a space where I am verbally respected as well because I think that what we're talking about is so so easy to disrespect, so easy to get upset about. I mean, theology and religious belief is a place where people disagree and have oftentimes go straight to the ad hominem. So you you hold this position and therefore you must be this kind of bad person or, you know, consumed by Satan or what have you. And I've been in situations where that's been the tenor and I had no interest in that. So I was very glad, Dan, that you were willing to be in that space of mutual respect and respectability. That's that's a very important piece, and I hope that our listeners have have felt that not only are we respecting each other, but that we're also trying to respect other voices, even voices with which we might deeply disagree. That, to me, is a very important part of the show that we're doing here. Yeah, I would agree. I think that was something I signed on to right away. It was a priority of yours. Another maybe parallel priority of mine was I wanted an informality. Yeah. Um, and, and just like we have, and I think that's really taken off uh, in terms of our conversation, even when we've had guests like uh, Vanessa White when she was in here. You know, th- this isn't a stuffy, you know, we, we talk about serious things, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. And I hope that is conveyed as well. And I know that as we look to the next season come spring 2018, um, that's that's kind of a the ethos I wish we carry forward as well. You know, the other thing, too, is uh, speaking of Vanessa White, I'm so grateful that she was able to join us. She's a, a colleague here in Chicago. And so it was, 
I shouldn't say easy for her to come into the studio because it's still demanding something of somebody to give the time it takes to come to the Lutheran School of Theology, which so graciously hosts the studio uh, here in the Zygon Center. But it's certainly easier than folks who live around the world. And so something I said very early on, too, is that I want to make sure that this program doesn't just become the two of us talking heads. Uh, I'm sure there's a certain segment of the Catholic and even non partisan, non-Catholic world that that might like to listen to what we have to say. But I also was very interested from the beginning, and David has been very uh, open to this and supportive of it, of, of, of bringing other voices in. And so this is something I think we're on the same page about. Due to technological issues um, and, and timing and resources, um, we haven't done that all, so much this season. But I do know this is something we and listeners should know, that we talk about very often. And we do, we've gotten such positive feedback from having Vanessa on board for that special episode. We've heard, you know, from others, you know, suggestions of people that would like to hear join us. And, and we're working on that. So, you know, all I can say at this point is, and, and maybe David has more to, you have more to add about uh, to this, but is, is to stay tuned that, that we're working on it. And this first season, we're really getting our sea legs. Like we went into this Jumping into the deep end in terms of the timing with very busy schedules, getting us on the same page, making sure we stick to schedule, getting a routine, working on themes, all this kind of stuff was really, we can say now, episode eight in at the end of the the season, we were flying by the seat of our pants. We were. But uh, a couple things about that. One, we've talked about the fact that early on we got trolled a little bit, and, and I'm very proud of the fact that we got trolled and, and <laughs> the way that we handled the trolling. More than the trolling, we we have gotten positive responses from listeners. Oh, so much! And yeah. whether it's whether it's on social media or whether it's an email here and there, either through the website or to our email address, and we're very appreciative of that. And you you have you have given us great suggestions, which we're going to try and incorporate. And you've made especially, as Dan just said, great suggestions for people that we might want to incorporate into the show. One of the things that we've talked about since we mentioned Pod Save America, they have a they have a structure where they'll do one or two segments where it's just them talking, but then they'll invite another voice in in a subsequent segment to allow them to talk to someone who is a tastemaker or a, a person who's in, in a new situation or a person who's right at the heart of something who can expand on on a situation. We'd really love to bring voices like that in in the second season, and we've already begun reaching out to some people to see about lining those things up. So that's one thing that's on the horizon is this attempt to bring more voices than ours in, and especially we want to be bringing in voices of persons of color, persons of sort of a different experience of Catholicism than two white guys. And there's a joke that I I, uh, I saw on Twitter about a week ago, and it's like, what do you call a group of, of guy journalists? And another person responded, a podcast. Oh, jeez. And uh, <laughs> there's and some truth in that. There is. And yeah. so getting, getting women's voices, getting uh, voices of persons of color, getting voices of persons that come, even I would love to talk to people who come from different religious traditions and have a chance to talk about issues as well with a Buddhist or a, a Baha'i or a, a person of the Jewish faith or a person of the Muslim faith. These are all things that I think this conversation can encompass and can accommodate. So maybe, you know, just to throw this back to all of our listeners, again, to, to reiterate David's point of gratitude for the feedback, for the uh, the props, for constructive criticism. Uh, we're not really grateful for the trolls. David's excited about that. That makes one of us because I get trolled in my own world all the time. And so, you know, I'm not really for the trolls, but everybody else, please um, feel free to, you know, follow up if this is of something that's of interest to you and something you'd like to hear more of like to see kind of unfold in the coming season, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, then please let us know. That that always really helps. The other thing I want to say, too, and, and this has been, you know, maybe it goes without saying, is gratitude for our sponsors. I mean, one of the things that was really striking about uh, starting this uh, podcast and starting this first season is that, again, like I mentioned, it's we kind of, you know, jumped into this really into the deep end right away, uh, getting things started without a whole lot of lead time. And we were so ve- very pleasantly surprised and grateful to Liturgical Press, to Franciscan Media, to those who, those are our individual sponsors on Patreon, and, and all those who continue to make this possible. I I know you hear this on other programs and other podcasts, and, and we try to be pretty good about keeping advertising to the advertising portions of the recording, but I think it's important for us to reiterate that 
you know, we can't do this. It costs money, actual cash money to, uh, to host this podcast, to distribute it, the bandwidth, the editing time, the production stuff, uh, particularly that Sandberg Media provides, uh, you know, David's company. So we're grateful for that sponsorship and we want to, you know, uh, encourage you to to patronize our patrons, uh, our sponsors, as well as to become maybe patrons yourself through Patreon. Yeah, and I just want to give a quick shout out to Nick and Candice and Deborah and Kathy, who all were early signers on to Patreon. And we just want you to know that we appreciate very much. There's going to be thank you notes coming in the mail around Christmas and other stuff, too. So we just want to say, you know, we notice you. We're thankful for you. We're busy, so don't, we don't always get a chance to, to say it on a, on a message or something. But we, we're going to try and make up for that when we have a little bit of free time over the break. But we just wanted to give you a shout out right here. So for next season, we're going to be starting in January. We'll be back. So we're going to take a few weeks off. And then in late January, we'll come back and we're going to do another run like we've done. We're going to do eight episodes of sort of every other week and we'll be ending just after Easter. That's right. Yeah. Or right before my daughter takes first communion is the way that I think of it right now. Yeah. So, so we're looking at, it's going to go from January to late April is yeah. basically the, the, yeah. the flow there for those of you not on adult first communion schedules. <laughs> By the way, I heard she uh, just celebrated her the, the rite of penance for the first time. She did. Yeah. And I have I have connections <laughs> in in the sacramental world. I mean, not the breaking of the the seal of confession. No, no this is just a a fellow friar that I live with in community who ministers at this parish, um, and I heard through the grapevine. So congratulations yep. to her. She was very excited and very nervous, and we had a lot of conversations about kind of what it meant. And I have to say, the parish was amazing. So we go to St. Thomas the Apostle here in Hyde Park. and Nice Carmelite Parish. In Nice Carmelite Parish. And uh, shout-outs to the, the people who are who are shepherding these young people through their sort of first communion experience, but also a shout out to your, your colleague and others who came and especially to the, the priest staff at the parish, uh, Father Elias and his, and his colleagues, because they really created a very welcoming and warm environment for what could be a very scary moment. Absolutely. And, it, and it, I think it was handled beautifully. That's great. Um, just to bring us back to what you were saying, sorry, I interrupted there. Um, so yeah, listeners, we're going to have eight more episodes slated for uh, spring 2018, aka season two of the Francis Effect podcast. But something David and I have been talking about in terms of looking back, looking forward, regrouping and planning, it, it is our intention. We've heard this from a few listeners um, asking about this, and, and I just want to throw it out in terms of you know, it's Christmas time. Santa's checking his lists or whatever. And, uh, and we've got a wish list too. We, we would really like to make this program weekly. Yes. And, and there is demand for it. There are people asking for it. One of the things, you know, just to give you a little behind the scenes glimpse, one of the things David and I struggle with is, you know, trying to, to make sure we bring relevant topics to our discussion, but also topics that aren't going to be so timely that by the time our podcast airs, depending on how far in advance we record it, that it's that's still relevant. You know, if we were able to switch to a weekly format where maybe we have 16 episodes a season, then we could we could talk about more timely things, perhaps uh, more in depth and, and cover a broader range of, of cultural and political topics and have more voices come join us. Now, in order to do that, uh, again, this is a little bit of a, of a, of a pitch it needs to be funded. And, and it's, uh, it, you know, right now we are able, thanks to the generosity of our sponsors and to our patron, patron, patrons, 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 patronins. <laughs> the people who give us money through Patreon. Yeah, thank you. Are those, those indiv- I'll call them individual sponsors because you're sponsoring this too. So, you know, through that generosity, we're able to, to do what we're able to do now. You know, if this is something that you'd like to see, you know, help spread the word, uh, let people know, uh, share uh, the program through social media, you know, by word of mouth and, uh, and consider sponsoring us. Uh, we're hoping that maybe by season three, fall of 2018, that we can bring this to you every week. Um, so... Yeah, keep that in mind. That's on our wish list. You can check it twice. <laughs> so thank you again for listening, and we'll be back in just a minute to pick up the next topic, which we'll be talking about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case versus Colorado case that just went through the Supreme Court. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, this is David. This episode of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by our friends at Franciscan Media. They're seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, Ronald Rollheiser, 
And, uh, oh, who's this on the list? Yeah, Dan Haran. I think I've heard of him. Your purchase or donation helps Franciscan Media continue to fill the world with the Franciscan spirit. Head over to franciscanmedia.org and check out features like The Saint of the Day, a short biography and reflection of the day's saint delivered to your inbox every morning. And when you're there on the website, I'm sure that you're going to see a lot of stuff that you'll love to purchase. When you do, let them know that Frank sent you. If you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, when you check out, you'll save 25% off your first order, and you'll let them know that their message is getting out through the show. We appreciate it very much. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Speaking of faith, some people have, in recent years, uh, drawn on their faith tradition, faith experience set of beliefs to justify uh, which customers, which consumers, which patrons, going back to the P word, they would like to serve or be able to serve or feel they have an obligation or no obligation to serve. And what we're talking about in particular here is a case that was argued before the United States Supreme Court recently. This is the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the state of Colorado. It began with, you know, a same-sex couple, two men who were engaged to be married, who went with their parents to a cake shop. And upon learning of their intention to have a cake uh, for their wedding. The baker, the owner of the establishment, declined to uh, bake a cake for them. He said, you can have any other of the products in the store here, but this is uh, against my uh, beliefs. I don't believe that two men or two women should be able to marry, and so refused them service. They then complained to, I believe it was the Chamber of Commerce or some some uh, Colorado state of Colorado consumer advocacy group, and, uh, and and this has just sort of unfolded. And so since David is, is far more expert and nerd about all things religion and politics, I'm going to throw it over to you. What is going on here? Well, I, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to be that broad, but I do tend to follow the Supreme Court pretty closely and nerd out about that. So I follow the other SCOTUS, <laughs> John Dunn SCOTUS. <laughs> The real SCOTUS. But go on, your SCOTUS. Fair enough. So my SCOTUS. So I, in order for listeners to get up to speed, I'm going to take three steps back. Okay, so the Supreme Court and all courts in America follow a principle called stare decisis, which means that they try and base current decisions upon decisions that have been made in the past, so precedent and case law. And so prior to 1990, there is a large body of precedent and case law for what we would call free exercise cases. The First Amendment of the Constitution begins with Congress will make no law regarding uh, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so we have sort of two, two prongs of that clause, the Establishment Clause, which is forbidding government from meddling in establishing a religion, and the free exercise clause, which prohibits the government from meddling in the practice of, of religiosity and religious identity. If I can just do a quick tangent there for listeners who want an illustration, a concrete illustration of the establishment clause where it is legalized and it's actually the law of the land, we can look to the United Kingdom where the sovereign, in this case, Queen Elizabeth II, is the head not only of state, but of church. And so the Church of England is an established religion. It is the established religion of Great Britain and the United Kingdom, although there are various iterations of the Anglican Communion. So, you know, you have the, the, the Scottish and the, the South Africans and Australians, and in the U.S. we have the Episcopalian Church, et cetera, et cetera. But um, that is not the case, and it has never been the case in Les Estados Unidos, or <laughs> Los Estados Unidos, or the United States. Exactly. And, and so up to 1990, this body of case law was robust and protected individuals and groups that wanted to exercise their religious preferences in the civic space. In 1990, there was a case called Employment Division versus Smith. And quickly, what that case did, it was two workers who were of Native American origin and they were working at a, a drug treatment facility. But on a weekend off, they went and participated in a Native American peyote ceremony. And then when they came back, they were given a random drug test and they failed the drug test because they, po they tested positive for this scheduled substance in their blood. And they were fired. W once they were fired, they filed for unemployment and they were denied unemployment. 
And so they appealed and they took the case up all the way to the, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually heard arguments in this case twice. And then after it had heard all of these arguments, Justice Antonin Scalia rendered the majority opinion. And what he basically said was, in any case where you have a religious preference and you have what is otherwise neutral and generally applicable law, so in other words, a law that applies to everyone regardless of their origin, regardless of their preference, regardless of anything. So it's not a law against a Jehovah's Witness, but it's a law that applies to generally to everyone, including Jehovah's Witnesses, that if a Jehovah's Witness or a person of faith is affected by that law, their religious preference folds under the general law. And the effect of this was that after Employment Division versus Smith, it was impossible to bring a free exercise claim to a court and have that claim be successful. And so that's that's the first piece, is that we have this, this body of case law that up to 1990 was very robust and protected free exercise rights. And in 1990, that all changed. In response to that, the federal government tried to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it was struck down. And they tried to pass another one, and it was again struck down. Again, the, the power of uh, Scalia's decision had ripple effects. Now, Individual states have religious freedom protection laws, but at the federal level, it doesn't exist anymore. And so, since 1990, the only successful protection of religious exercise has actually happened not under the, the body of case law of the free exercise clause, but instead has been done under free speech. And so, in particular, the first person to do this was a man by the name of Jay Sekulow. And Jay Sekulow won a case at the Supreme Court called the Lamb's Chapel case, but he didn't argue on free exercise grounds. He argued on free speech grounds. Now, some people who are listening may remember Jay Sekulow's name because he is one of the two legal consultants to the current president. All right, so, yeah, so Jay Sekulow has, has a long history. He didn't just appear out of nowhere. And I would say that his, his legal reasoning to get to that defense in the Lamb's Chapel case was utterly brilliant because he established then a way for people who were concerned about religious liberty to begin to win cases again. And so what's happening here, in, and this is all a long way of saying what's happening here in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, is not a case about free exercise of religion. It's a case about free expression. That's right. My understanding is, uh, from a much more pedestrian perspective, is precisely that, that uh, and I actually heard, I think it might have been on the New York Times Daily Podcast, an interview with the actual owner of Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, in which he makes exactly this point that he's, they're not arguing on religious grounds, but rather he feels that the law of the land that says that, uh, that protects, discrimin- protects people from discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender or, and so forth, religious uh, uh, affiliation and, and the like, he feels that he's being compelled to say something in his quote-unquote art form, which is baking cakes, which I, I think it's fair enough to call that an art form. Uh, I'm certainly not the best at it. So certainly people who are good are artists. I see them all the time in bakeries. Even the one down the street, it's amazing. We have a grocery, local grocery store, and, and they have this kind of glassed area where they're decorating cakes. And I go, that's how it's done. Amazing. So I didn't know human beings actually could do that. I thought it was all robots, but anyway. So anyways, way off topic. He's arguing that he feels as though the government is effectively compelling him to say something that that he does not want to say. He has no freedom to say something contrary to the law of the land. Well, and another piece of this, and it's something that is often brought up on social media or even goodness knows, around a Thanksgiving dinner table. Well, this must be like if, if you were a, a person who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and you went to an African-American cake shop and you said, we want you to bake a Klan cake. So you may hear that argument sometimes. But this brings in the second, or I guess now, this brings in the third piece that we need to talk about, and that's the notion of legally protected class. Because within our country's history, we have determined that there are certain populations that are more vulnerable than others. And so we have created carve-outs within the law, what is called a legally protected class. So there are, there are actions that you cannot take towards certain legally protected classes. For example, you can't discriminate on the basis of gender. You can't discriminate on the basis of religious preference. And you also cannot discriminate on the basis of uh, sexual preference. And so because these protected classes exist, the Ku Klux Klan is not a protected class. 
And so even though it may look on its face to be a similar sort of situation where I don't like the Klan, I don't want to support the message of the Klan, therefore I will refuse to bake the cake. I don't like same-sex marriage. I don't want to support same-sex marriage, therefore I refuse to bake the cake. From a legal standpoint, they're actually two different ball games. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see how the justices, particularly Justice Kennedy, Kennedy yeah. yeah, how how they handle that particular aspect of protected class because it's only been very recently, in fact, thanks to Justice Kennedy, that this has even been a real live issue. Yeah. Well, and we should say Justice Kennedy has oftentimes been the swing vote to make to, to establish the majority decision, particularly when it comes to uh, same-sex marriage in the United States as a constitutional right, it's, it's thanks to him in some part. It's not – there are four other justices too. The majority of the court has, has decided that. What do we think about this? Um, you know, one of the things that you brought up, the KKK free expression and making cakes for them and this sort of thing by way of contrast – you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, one of the other arguments you hear people say sometimes is slippery slope stuff. Does this mean that you can go into a kosher deli and insist on a ham sandwich or something like this? Um, you know, you hear all these kind of seemingly absurd hypotheses. Is there any legitimacy to this? You know, what do you think about this? Where, where do you think it's going to go as well? Well, okay. I, I wish that I could say that I trusted human nature not to be jerks, but... My sense is, yes, we could find a slippery slope, but it wouldn't be a slippery slope of continuing progressivism. Instead, I would find that there would be a slippery slope of finding ways to utilize precedent in these particular cases to make marginalized and threatened communities feel more marginalized and more threatened. I can definitely see that because we've got we have ample historical evidence that that is oftentimes what happens. I mean, religious protections and the the free exercise clause protections we're often there to protect minority religions. Who is availing themselves now of free exercise protection are the majority religions. Yeah. So Christianity is now using free exercise precedent and protections to try and, and bolster its case that it is being somehow persecuted. Historically, Christianity has not been persecuted in this country. For 80 years or more, historically, Catholics have not been persecuted in this country. And yet we have those being the main groups that are coming and calling for these kinds of robust free exercise protections. Well, certainly a certain segment of the, of the Christian population or self-identified Christians. I, I would be, I, I would just add a caution that, that we shouldn't uh, lump everybody together because I think people who are not Christian or a particular form of Christianity, like Catholic Christianity, might look at us and see exactly that, that all evangelicals, all Southern Baptists, all Presbyterians, all Lutherans, and all Roman Catholics are exactly the same. And that's, that's not true, and it's not true even within the respective denominations, the respective ecclesial communities. But but you're 100% correct that this is something that, you know, we saw it with Proposition 8 in California some years back. We've seen it at the at the local level, the state level. We've seen it at the 2004 presidential election. Uh, one of the things that brought a lot of very animated voters out in support of George W. Bush in the midterm of, or the, the re-election of, of George W. Bush or, well, it depends on what you consider the first round if the Supreme Court making the decision constitutes an election. But in the 2004 election, at least, one of the strategies was to put referenda on state ballots and local ballots to forbid essentially uh, same-sex marriage or uh, civil unions in, in different locations. And that would uh, elicit a certain animated base. So behind that, of course, the Roman Catholic Church in, in various parts of the United States, um, if not the USCCB collectively, as well as other uh, Christian entities and leaders have certainly done exactly what you've described, which is, you know, claimed a certain persecution, which I find quite honestly specious. I think I agree with you, David, that it, you are very, very hard pressed in the United States to make a legitimate case, a justifiable case that Christians are persecuted in this country. And, you know, one of the ways that I see that so starkly is the communities of people that I work with and teach here in Chicago, I think in particular of a number of my students who are international. These are Roman Catholic, oftentimes seminarians or religious sisters or lay people that come from countries like Vietnam or China or other parts of the world uh, where there is actual persecution against Christian communities and people practicing religion of any sort. 
And I find it uh, deeply disturbing. I find it insulting. Uh, I find it on the verge of disgusting that here in the United States of America, where any Roman Catholic, even in the deep South, uh, even in states where Catholicism is represented by 1% or less of the, of the population, you can still go practice your tradition, practice your religion. Um, and that's true. I think it's, it's multiplied uh, by orders of magnitude when it comes to Christianity as such, if we were to include all kind of communities of Christians together. So, you know, I, I think there are a couple different things here. One is I personally take offense regardless of this shift to free speech, which, again, like you said, it was a very clever constitutional argument to make and one that is is very interesting. It's, it's worth thinking about it, and you can see how it can be used for good or ill. Even with that, what's really at stake here is a claim that is rooted in one person or, or groups of people's, again, within the majority, certainly of Christianity in the United States, interpretation of their Christian faith. And uh, as a Christian, as a Roman Catholic priest, I, I take offense at that. Regardless of how it plays out, and we still don't know how the Supreme Court is going to judge this case, there will be repercussions. And there'll be repercussions whether they come down in support of Masterpiece Cake Shop or whether they come down sort of overturning the claims of Masterpiece Cake Shop. And we've talked before on the program about Father Jim Martin and some of the problems that he's having. We've also talked about one of your mentors, M. Sean Copeland, all of whom have been sort of called out by the conservative Christian side of of the conversation for simply saying that people who are same-sex attracted, people who are homosexual, people who are gay, lesbian, transgender, simply deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And so I, I worry in the current climate that regardless of what the what the outcome of this case is, we're going to see a, a ratcheting up again of this kind of vitriol and a ratcheting up of this kind of hatred against people who are simply trying to exist. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, there are various levels. And I, I think there are, um, when we get to talking about the particular acts of men and women as individuals or, or as groups or as couples and so forth, it gets A, very personal, which means that this there isn't evidence on the public level to really engage. So it's, it's presumptuous to assume anything about anybody that you don't know firsthand. That's one thing. So I think there's a certain kind of ethical and theological and uh, social humility that's required in these kinds of conversations. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, you know, it, it is on the one hand, it's just a very interesting case because the, the presenting issue is, is cakes, <laughs> is, is, you know, no one's entitled to a cake, period. By definition, they're like special occasions. They're, they're for dessert. They're, you know, it's just an interesting setup. And so it can seem really ridiculous, which I think plays into the whole argument about, you know, well, you know, no one's entitled to this, et cetera. Except it, it's, it's not much of a leap to go back to. I'm thinking about our own community here. We live in the south side of Chicago. You know, the ramifications of picking a, a minority group of people, in this case African Americans in Chicago, and determining who is or isn't entitled to live in what area, who is and isn't entitled to a house or a mortgage, uh, and under what conditions, you know, has dramatic and long-lasting effects. The third thing I would say is that from the Christian tradition, we have sacred scripture, inspired word of God, that at every turn takes the preferential option of those who are marginalized, the oppressed. You know, God doesn't say in the Psalms, God doesn't say through the prophets, God doesn't say in God's self incarnate in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. There's no message of, you know what, I side with those who are living comfortably and have everything the way it is and who have it easy, you know, and so let's make it harder for those who think differently than us, who we may not be able to understand, who, uh, you know, live in a way that makes me uncomfortable for whatever reason. Quite the opposite. Jesus, one of the things that made Jesus so threatening, and we see it in the, in the Gospels, is the accusations that are leveled against him. Some people who may have been on his side or sympathized with him still couldn't get it when they ask things like, why are you seen eating and drinking with prostitutes and sinners, with drunkards and so forth. You, you allege to be a holy man or people claim this of you, but you're not acting like that. And what I see in that is a challenge to the church, a challenge to Christian women and men. Our responsibility is to be, if we're going to dare to call ourselves Christian, to bear the name Christ you know, in our titles and in our identities, then we need to be like Christ, which means 
even if you don't understand it, even if you feel as though, you know, somebody is doing something that you don't entirely approve of or understand or whatever, you know, if they're labeled a certain way or discriminated against, you know, this is like Jesus associating with Samaritan women or with people who have had multiple spouses or with uh, alleged prostitutes or with embezzling tax collectors or with, you know, mischievous politicians and the rest. I mean, let's get real about what Christianity is all about. I don't think it's fair. I think it's a deep scandal within the Christian community, but also to those of uh, to those outside of the Christian faith. It's a deep scandal to claim this kind of discrimination in the name of Christ. I couldn't think of a better way to end the segment than just with that powerful observation, and thank you for that. And so we're going to be back in just a minute. Uh, you're listening to The Francis Effect, and uh, I'm here with Dan Haran. This is David Dalt. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt and I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. And there's a current event coming up that I'm really excited about and that's the fact that there's a new Star Wars movie coming out. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh... I'm going to see it in a couple of days. I don't know when you're going to see it. Well, because I have young children, it, we it'll happen when we go to Pittsburgh and we have oh. extra childcare. So my wife and I will steal away one night and we'll go and we'll see an evening show together. And that's that's when we get our main movie watching done in the theater is when we we are able to be with her parents and then we can just go and 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 have some time to ourselves. But so are the kids too young still? What's we have shown them a couple of the we've shown them the first two of the classic trio of films. So oh man, seen, leave them hanging with Empire. Well, yeah, but the reason why was because they they got a little nervous. They were very very worried about what was going to happen to Han. And and oh and yeah, they, yeah, and they and they really were. And spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, he's he's okay. You know, they're still at a point where narrative works strangely for them. They take narrative very very seriously. And I, my son especially, who's six, will at times get so wrapped up in the narrative that he will literally physically get up from his chair and he'll have to kind of walk out of the room just to kind of give himself some space from what's happening. And then he'll come back and and he'll he'll snuggle. But you my know, my godson is like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my my best friends from college, their firstborn, awesome kid, brilliant, brilliant kid, but um, he's a very, very empathetic person. Yes. And so um, I remember hearing from uh, my friend Andrew uh, talking about, about my godson. They were watching the Lego movie, which is rel- relatively tame. You know, it's four kids, but there's so many feels there, you know, and you have all these superheroes and you have the Batman and you have Star Wars. Like Darth Vader is a, is a Lego, I guess. I still haven't seen the film, but I hear adults like it too, so I should watch it. But but that yeah even that because of the narrative you know so empathetic so wrapped into it that it could be hard for him to watch yeah big feels and I mean I I remember when I was I first saw Star Wars when I was six I saw the first movie A New Hope in the theater and it, it blew me away to this day I'm I'm affected by by it but I also have to say that I walked into your office the other day and I had never <laughs> noticed this before but behind the door in your office hanging on the wall. There's a degree, and then beneath the degree, there's a framed poster of The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Tell me the story Nerd of alert. that. <laughs> well, I am a very, very big Star Wars fan, and it will be difficult for me to overstate that. In fact, if any of my family's listening or friends from uh, high school or elementary school, they can attest to this, and they'll probably say that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of underplaying it. 
when I was a little kid, probably younger than six, but not not much younger than six, I was obsessed with Star Wars. And, and my parents will tell you, my mom will tell you that this is back in the day of VHS. And, and they had a VHS copy, uh, particularly I loved Return. Return of the Jedi was, was by far my favorite and uh, would just watch that on a loop basically all day long. And was just fascinated. It had the toys, uh, the whole world of, of Star Wars. Uh, as I got older, I had I started developing what is affectionately referred to in my family as the Star Wars collection. I had a whole kind of little little walk-in closet space in in the basement of finished basement of my parents' house, where uh, all of my Star Wars items and and toys and cards and collectibles were were housed under lock and key. In junior high, one of my best friends from junior high, a guy by the name of Joe. He and I were such Star Wars nerds that we would – this was back – my parents – my family had just gotten a, a compact Presario Windows 3.1 computer. And so in these – in word processing, we would come up in, in our own homes over, overnight or over the weekend, devise the most complicated Star Wars trivia tests that we could imagine. And we would – go to school the next Monday or whatever and swap them at lunch and see, you know, and grade them basically and see if we could stump the other person and how far you can go. So I have to say that over the last 20 something years that that has, in terms of my acute recollection of all the ins and outs of all the alien names and, and ship titles and planets and uh, chronology and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's pretty uh, atrophied, but uh, my love uh, for Star Wars and the Star Wars world, the themes that are in it, the characters, is is uh, still at all time high. I, I, I'm already anticipating the goosebumps, the hair at the back of my neck, the moment that the Lucas, uh, the Lucas film kind of sparkly thing shows up on the projector, and you hear the opening of the main theme by John Williams and the scrolling of of the text. The first time I saw that in the theaters, I was actually in high school when they re-released the classic ones. And and it was just, it was, I think I may have cried <laughs> to, just to have that experience, being so familiar with the, the score and the, and the movies and the characters, to see it on the big screen, which, you know, I was born the same year Return of the Jedi came out. So uh, I never did have the opportunity to see those films uh, when they were first released. So these days, it's so exciting. So anyways, that Empire Strikes Back poster in my office uh, was a gift from one of my brothers a couple of years back. And there probably would be more, but then it would become weird if I had too much Star Wars paraphernalia. Well, since you never had a chance to see them originally in the theater, let me describe to you what it was like. And I went back and saw it multiple times because at this particular point in cinema history, if a movie was a hit, it would stay at a film house for months and so you had the possibility of going and seeing Star Wars for months. And so I went back many, many times to see it. But one of the first times that I saw it, I remember that at the end, the audience burst into applause. People were, were sort of shouting back at the screen, particularly when uh, in, in A New Hope they're in the, the garbage masher and that little one-eyed thing pops yeah, up. Yeah. And, and you could hear people going, ooh, ah, ooh. And so the audience was so caught up in the story. It was amazing to me to be a kid in that and to see how powerful a story could be, how much a group of people could be gripped by a narrative. And I was gripped by it. I mean, I came home that night from the first time seeing it, saying like, you know, may the force be with you. I was sold from the perfect. Yeah. So now I've got to ask. The original trilogy and then the Jar Jar Binks trilogy. Yeah. Where do you go with that? So, look, you're not going to get me to say that I love episodes one through three. However, I, something this past year, I, I reached a turning point. I, I think it's a process of uh, the various stages of grief and so forth where, where you come to acceptance. I have just too many absolutist friends. And, and, and here's the thing that kills me, including other friars, people who I do not recognize being as serious a fan of Star Wars as I am. I mean, they might like Star Wars. They're usually, but but they're not. I mean, they're not writing trivia tests for their friends, uh, you know, trying to stump them and know all this kind of stuff. They're usually the first to say, "Oh, I refuse to ever watch episodes one through three again." Phantom Menace, blah blah blah. All right, 
I agree. It, those films will forever be a subpar. You know, they can't. They don't compare to the original trilogy. They don't compare to J.J. Abrams and what I assume I'm going to see this weekend. However, I, I want to respect the integrity of of the story. And so, while they're subpar, you know, now we're talking about eight films. You know, you know, five of the eight are pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good. Three floppers. I mean, with each good one that comes out, I feel like the, the suffering, uh, the, the tragedy of the subpar prequels, as it were, um, lessens for me. I, I, if I had a choice, you know, to, to choose which film I want to watch, I, I'm probably not going to go to those earlier episodes, the, 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 the prequels. But I think I'm coming to a greater piece about it than a lot of other people have. I'm like, I think I'm ready to let George Lucas off the hook, you know, and maybe not off the hook. I think I'm ready to forgive him. I don't, I don't know if off the hook's the right way to describe it, but I'm like, I'm, I'm just not, I'm tired of, of ex- expending the energy getting all worked up about this. And, uh, and I, I say that because you know what, it's, it's like, you know, a good friend or a family member or something you're in a dispute with. It's like, all right, it's time to let it go. All right, George, you really screwed up. But you know what? It, it's not lost, and we saw that. We've seen that with the offshoot with Rogue One as well. I mean, we, we're living in a good Star Wars time, and uh, yeah, we've had some bumpy roads, and uh, that's okay. Well, one of the things that, as a theologian, I appreciate about the first three or the the prequels is if you have read John Calvin, you recognize that there's basically a Calvinist arc to the the life of Anakin Skywalker, and. For those of you that haven't read John Calvin, basically Calvin's notion of sin is that sin corrupts your ability to see the good and that you may intend to do the good, but in in intending to do the good, you will do evil and you will do harm unless you are corrected by the Holy Spirit and by Scripture. And so when we look at Anakin Skywalker, he is wanting to help his mother and then he's wanting to help Padme. But along the way, those desires to help others because he is not in a good moral space, those good desires are perverted and he ends up becoming evil. And so, you know, John Calvin somewhere I think is a fan of those first three films because they're a way of sort of explaining the way that he, I think, saw the universe. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that Star Wars is a Christian is a Christian narrative. It's not. It's not. We're not talking like C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia here. Nevertheless, I, I think that, that it's well documented that George Lucas borrowed heavily from all major narratives, from all major kind of hero narratives, including the Christ narrative, in constructing the conceits of these stories. So he had it in the back of his head. Yeah, it's certainly not antithetical to Christianity. I think there are some themes, um, there are resonances, is maybe the best way to describe it from my vantage point. So yeah, I would agree with you. It's not just Calvin, although it certainly aligns with a certain Calvinist uh, reading of sin. I, I think Calvin, of course, gets that, if I remember correctly. You know, it, it's it's a kind of Augustinianism Correct. that he inherits. Uh, this idea that Augustine has, too, that sin, what it does is um, it's it's as if the human person is bent over by the weight of their sinfulness. It's it's almost like navel-gazing. They can't see reality correctly. They can only see themselves, and they see peripherally and distortedly. And so, yes, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, you know, through no work of our own, no merit of our own, God, you know, lifts us up in grace if we're, if we're cooperating with it to see the world, to stand upright and so forth. So yeah, there's definitely that kind of motif uh, that's there that that resonates with Christianity, both of the Reformed tradition and, and otherwise. I think in terms of moral reasoning, we have this business like you were talking about a second ago that sin is complicated because uh, very rarely is there a significant singular break with reality. And oftentimes if that happens, somebody does some great harm to another or to a group of people in one swift instance out of the blue, then then usually they're not necessarily culpable for that. I mean, they might be, but I'm just saying that oftentimes if it comes out of the blue, then there are other circumstances that lead to this. Sin, by definition, for something to be sinful, you have to know that it's wrong and do it anyways. There has to be agency involved. And so what we see here is is a distortion, which is also very Augustinian, of mistaking means and ends. And so, you know, the dark side of the force you know, uh, the, these folks, whether it's Anakin Skywalker, spoiler alert, who becomes Darth Vader, or maybe some of the things we're seeing intimated about Kylo Ren or about Rey uh, to be seen in the, in, the, in the coming week with the upcoming film, a lot of these themes are going to be revisited about can you justify the means by the end? 
you know, Anakin, like you said, particularly with with the women in his life, uh, mother, uh, lover, these sorts of things, trying to little bit, little things here, little things there. It's kind of a death by a thousand paper cuts of of trying to do the right thing by any means necessary. Luke Skywalker in in episodes four through six, we have a similar sort of thing going on. He abandons his training. He he rushes back, uh, and it seems perhaps justified because of the way things turn out at the end of Return of the Jedi. But, you know, Yoda warns him. You know, we have that scene, you know, that, that very creepy but very prescient scene where he's in the cave and he slices off Darth Vader's head and then sees his own face in there. What is that portending? You know, I think there's something on the horizon. Maybe more of that will be unveiled in uh, The Last Jedi. I, I think one of the things that I've been most drawn to as a theologian uh, to the Star Wars universe is the notion of the Force. And I, I like to think of a resonance between the way the Force is described in, in, throughout the whole series and, uh, and beyond and the way that we talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. God's presence in the world is that which binds us, brings us together, unites us, uh, is close to us. It's what's animating and life-giving. The problem is, of course, you have this kind of dark side of the Force, which, um, you know, is is somewhat is, is pretty incompatible with the notion of grace being first and foremost uh, the gift of God's self and the Holy Spirit. But I, I, I wonder, you know, kind of hearkening back to our Masterpiece Cake Shop conversation and, and other conversations, maybe the Calvinist understanding of sin and so forth, that, you know, maybe it's not the Holy Spirit, but what people think is grace or think is God becomes an exercise of human free will that is an ends and means kind of conflation that leads to harm and division and, and alienation. Um, and we, when we see people pursue that path, we see it in the Star Wars series, we see it in our kind of contemporary reality, that's what we might call sin. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Uh, you had asked me, <laughs> you noticed uh, my, my Empire Strikes Back uh, poster behind my office door, and, uh, and then you mentioned something about my habit. It's true. As a Franciscan friar, my religious habit does look a lot like a Jedi Knight's attire. It has not been lost on me that that's the case and that uh, Franciscans, as Roman Catholic clergy, also uh, take a vow of uh, chastity. We don't get married. That's part of the drama behind episodes one through three and following. Um, that, you know, uh, Jedi are, are not married. So, I mean, there are interesting kind of resonances, uh, with regard to religious life as well. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know, maybe, uh, I was attracted to the Franciscan family, to the Franciscan way of life in part because of hundreds of thousands of hours of watching Star Wars as a kid. Well, I'm, I'm very excited that you get a chance this weekend to nerd out with your Franciscan brothers dressed in your Obi-Wan Kenobi robes. <laughs> I um, don't think we'll be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be awesome if you could, because you could, you could totally legitimately go to, the, go to the movie dressed in character and out of character at the same That's time. That's true. That's true. It'd be fantastic. But so, and, and I'm, I'm very excited to see it as well. Uh, I know that our listeners are, are excited to see it, but I, I just have one final question for you. Who shot first? Oh, jeez. Han. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Screw Greedo. <laughs> so. Well, with that, we've come to the end of our last episode of this season of The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it, and, and we're looking forward to hearing from you and to bringing this show back in January and having you and, I hope, many of your friends listen in and uh, go on this journey with us. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Hold on. Dan, thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah, this and has been a welcome. blast. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next season. To be continued. To be continued. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology here at Chicago. 
They are not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We are supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us on this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis and the letters F and X and the word pod. And likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in January with a brand new season. Thank you for listening.